Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi. I recently completed my two-month transformational leadership program and the results were powerful. If you want to live an exciting life and fulfill your highest potential in 2023 and beyond, I have an incredible opportunity for only a few more individuals to join the next cohort. I will personally be coaching a small group on how to discover and clear your limiting beliefs, how to manage your energy instead of your time, how to tap into the power of your intuition, and how to use discernment so that you can start living a life full of ease, abundance, and flow. As someone who has helped countless entrepreneurs and CEOs open doors of possibility they never thought existed, I can tell you that this strategy will completely transform your life. Best part, you'll 10X your output and unlock your creative genius. I'll work with you weekly to overcome your limiting beliefs and transform that into a new self-concept. I'll teach you how to create clarity, systems and processes, and I'll also help you develop your intuition. You'll get access to some of the best material that will also help you manage your energy, and you'll get access to guided meditations that are not available anywhere else. This method is so effective. If you'd like to join the waitlist, you can find the link in the show notes or navigate to www.yasmintarehi.com backslash gateways hyphen to hyphen awakening backslash. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Sarah McCrum, who believes in a society that is fundamentally based in love, generosity, and a deep understanding of the essence of being human. Her purpose is to contribute to creating a world that works for 100% of humanity, and she's an author, educator, and business innovator. She's the founder of Liberate Humanity, which is a place for learning and sharing the skills for liberation of the human spirit. Sarah's also spent more than 20 years teaching and coaching business owners and their families. She's the creator of the program Thank You Money, based on the principles of her book, Love Money, Money Loves You. She's also the co-originator of Love2, a group of mutual companies that have created a new type of financial product, which we will talk about on the show. And you can find her at lovemoneybook.com. And we will also include the link in the show notes. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Yasmin. I'm delighted to be here. So Sarah, just to kick it off, can you tell us what does money actually mean to you? That's a, that's a big question um, because my understanding and my connection with money changed very radically when I found myself writing what turned out to be the book, Love Money, Money Loves You, but was not intended as a book. In fact, it wasn't intended at all. I literally one day found myself writing a message from money. I hadn't even set out to do that. And it was a really surprising and beautiful message. And it showed me some things about money that I'd never, ever thought about. And so I started to inquire more to try to find out what is money really. So to answer your question from doing that and teaching about it and years of exploration of what is money, what it is to me is a beautiful generous, loving energy that pervades all of life, that's present for every single one of us, whether we have money as in cash um, or not. And it is the expression of the generosity of life. It is also for me the system that it's like the subtle energy system that hears our inner wishes and desires and requests and responds to them and moves life around, around us, so that those wishes and desires and requests can be fulfilled. So in many ways, it is it is the energy of manifestation and of materialization and ultimately of creation that we have narrowed down through our misunderstanding and mis- misinterpretation into a very, very limited form that we call money, which is cash and cards and transactions in banks and contracts and that energy that flows through business. To me, it's something so, so much more than what we tend to see. Mm. Wow. It's so beautiful. And it sounds like, you know, when you're 
words, really. Money is uh, alive. It's not a kind of fixed sort of um, machine or object. It's like actually alive, like a human, and it moves. Um, you know, and I, I love that so much. Can you tell us a little bit more about like what did money say to you when you were asking it? You know how how it worked. The very first thing it said to me, the very first words were, I would like to tell you to love me, <laughs> which was pretty surprising in itself. Um, it talked about how it's an energy, that it's very powerful and beautiful, and it connects human beings together and especially enables us to connect through our creativity and through our contribution to, to life and to each other. It said many times throughout the messages that I wrote that it's unlimited, that we've completely misunderstood it because we think that it's limited and we think that it's scarce. And that's not actually the case. It's unlimited. And that was a really interesting thing to grapple with. What does that mean to say that money is un unlimited? But it was very emphatic about that. It, it showed me that it's a re it, that it's an energy that we're better to relax with because when we're relaxed, we're more receptive. And so we literally receive more of that energy, which can then get turned into actual money and actual material things that we want and experiences. And the enjoyment is the key to our relationship with money. So relaxation, enjoyment, love are recurring themes in all communications that I have had with this energy that calls itself money um, and that enable us to have a good relationship with it, a healthy relationship. It's healthy for us. It's also healthy for it. It's also a creative and a productive relationship so that we can get the kind of results and outcomes that we want to experience in our life. Mm. Uh, I think it's so interesting. I just came back from New York and have noticed that a lot of people in culture oftentimes have a lack around money or a scarcity mindset. And um, there's a the tenseness within the body, you know, thinking about money or thinking about all the ways that one has to pay bills. And it's interesting because I, I think oftentimes I've noticed this just anecdotally that people who have a lot of money oftentimes are not the ones that are most relaxed about money. <laughs> you know, it's just so interesting. And, uh, you know, I think in terms of like living life and, and having a inner peace within oneself, I love this concept because I think it's not really about the amount of money, right? But it's about your feeling towards it. And that probably has a lot to do with one's feelings towards, you know, life itself, right? And, um, you know, what it means to even receive and give. Yes, they're very connected. And when people develop and grow their relationship with money, it changes their relationship with life, definitely. It's also really important to say that it's not just about your feelings towards it. That's really important. But it's also really important to bring in the other part, which is about at least having enough money or having an experience of abundance. And it's not possible to do that without any money. Sometimes people will go over spiritual and they'll say, oh, well, it's all about my inner experience and I feel abundant. But if a challenge comes along and they suddenly need a whole lot of money, maybe to pay some very important bills or because there's a medical crisis or something happens with one of their children, you'll know very quickly if you don't have enough money for that. And that will not feel abundant. So... I think that it's really important to engage with both sides of this. There's the feeling and the purpose and the the relationship with money. And there's the material reality of money and the things that money buys that are an essential part of our life. If we don't have that, life doesn't work very well. It, it doesn't feel good to be broke. And it doesn't feel good also to have a lot of money and be worrying about it all the time. So money's not the answer, is not the only answer to being broke. And inner peace is not the only answer um, either. You need both. Thank you. And how did you get started working in this field? Uh, literally because I found myself writing those messages, which I turned <laughs> into the book. And then it was basically, do I ignore this? Or do I 
pay attention to it. And I was actually pretty much forced to pay attention to it. I tried ignoring it to begin with. Um, and then I moved to Australia with my husband. And after a few weeks, I realized we have to have a business that is going to pay for everything. I didn't have any fallback situation there. And I didn't know a single person in Australia. And so the only thing that I really had that could help me at that time was my book. And so I learned from reading the book and applying what was written in the book, how to survive all the challenges of starting out a business in a country where you don't know anybody with no money. <laughs> and how do you pay the rent every week? That's where I started. And then I, my mum and sister were coming to New Zealand for Christmas and I needed to get to New Zealand. How do I make sure I'm in New Zealand in time for Christmas when I don't have any money? And I'm going to have to pay thousands of dollars for flights and for everything else. And so I had to solve it. And I went through so many situations that I had to solve. I had to have the money because I couldn't afford not to. And that's actually how I learned how to do it for myself, at least in the early stages. And then my business started to grow and my ambitions, if you like, the things that I was creating started to grow. And so my relationship with money had to grow. And that continues to this day. It's having to grow very, very rapidly and expansively at the moment because of the work that I'm doing. And so I'm always kind of driven by this need actually to engage with money in a bigger way because there are bigger things to do and bigger things to deal with. Can you talk to us about some of the ways that you were able to change your relationship when you wanted to get to New Zealand? Like how did that, how did you have to change your mindset maybe to allow this new relationship to work and come in? One of the things that I had to do and have had to do repeatedly, and this may be a particular pattern of mine, but other people will relate to it, is to value myself and my own experience. When I was very short of money and I knew that I, I, I literally couldn't buy the tickets, I was not telling my mum that I hadn't bought the tickets because I didn't want her to step in and say, oh, I'll buy a ticket for you because I had made the decision for myself that I was not going to do that anymore. And so I didn't tell her and I knew I didn't have the money. And what tends to happen and what I tend to do in that situation is I look for all the cheapest things in the supermarket. You know, I just minimize on every expense and I minimize my own life. And what I've found, I've done that repeatedly. And what I've found is that the message that that gives to the money system is that I'm not open to receiving. Like I'm living in such a limited way. I actually close myself down. So one of the things I've had to do in a reasonable way, you can't do this in a crazy way, is to really value myself and not just by the cheapest possible things I can find, but mm. to say, I really want to have a little bit of a richer experience of life and I'm going to pay for that. And I found I could do that when I didn't have much money. I could do that um, without blowing my bank account, so to speak. But instead of buying just the cheapest, whatever it was, almonds or I would actually buy the ones I really wanted or buy some organic ones. And that kind of gesture towards the energy of money shows that you're open for a better experience of life. And it's way more powerful than you would imagine. And then the other thing that I've had to do and I've had to learn to do is to be crystal clear about what I want, that I really was going to go to New Zealand and I was going to enjoy it there. And that clarity makes it forms a request at a subtle level, which is the kind of thing that the energy of money can respond to very easily. So that kind of the clarity of desire combined with a, a, an underlying foundation of love for myself and for my life and appreciation and respect for that. These have been consistent themes for me in terms of getting better results and solving those kinds of problems. I really love that. And I think this concept of self-love as the first principle of managing and kind of cultivating money in your life, I think is so important. It's something a lot of people don't talk about. Um, why do some people have so much difficulty making or managing money? From my observation and personal experience, we have a very deep conflict inside us around money. 
which distorts our relationship with it. And a lot of that has come from religious and spiritual teachings. So whether we have personally been exposed to those teachings or not, we live in a culture and pretty much all cultures all over the world are exposed to some of these teachings. We live in cultures that are imbued with this conflict. And the conflict is around being a good person and doing good things and making money. Because if you think about it, Christianity is the most mainstream religion in Western culture, uh, although it's by no means the only one, but it has had a very big influence on our culture. And certainly at a surface level and even at a fairly deep level reading of the messages from Christianity, poverty will bring you closer to God. And being rich is definitely, it comes across very strongly as an impediment, as a, as a, a blockage in your relationship with God. And now over um, the last few decades, we've been highly influenced by the East. And then we see the solitary monk meditating in a cave as a kind of archetype of goodness and virtue, or the monk with a begging bowl who doesn't touch money. And the interesting thing for all of, the, all of those to take place is that somebody else has to be touching the money. In order for somebody to beg, somebody else has to have something to give them. In order for a church to keep its people poor, it also and at the same time to become very wealthy itself, there is engagement with money at the same time as there is a message of disconnection from money. And so I think that even as young children, we look at these things and we we simply don't know how to make head or tail of it because it doesn't make any sense that if you are going to be a good person, you have to deny one of your most fundamental desires, which I think comes from the soul, which is the desire to experience abundance. And yes, abundance isn't just money but it doesn't exclude money and it doesn't exclude material life. But if you see that the messaging is so mixed up in your own culture, um, that starts you off confused. And so as you grow up, you become somebody who maybe wants to do something good and then you have to reject money in order to protect your virtue. Or maybe you you need to make money to take care of your family and to take care of your responsibilities. And I know many people who feel incredibly guilty about the money they've made. They're successful. And they feel ashamed of it because they think that they're taking it away from poorer people. And they feel ashamed of their own desire for money. So these kinds of cultural myths distort our own soul relationship with itself and its its connection with life. And so I don't think it's surprising that many, many people end up with very confused and confusing relationships with money. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I think that's very true for so many people in the West, especially growing up, you know, with our minds colonized to believe certain things about money and, um, and the religious context, uh, in it. So what is something that people can do today to become wiser energetically about managing money, especially, you know, if they have to deal with some of these programs? You need to really um, explore what money is and get beyond the beliefs and the myths that are prevalent in our society. I don't really feel that it's possible to change your relationship with money if money doesn't become something different from what it is for you. If it continues to be that same thing, whether you're somebody who rejects it or whether you feel very needy around it or whatever it is, if you don't change your understanding of what it is at a fundamental level, it's very difficult to change your relationship with it. If you see it as something that perhaps is like very demanding or withholds itself from you, if you don't come to understand that it it's actually a very kind and very loving and very beautiful energy, it's difficult to change your relationship. So um, I, I feel that it is essential that we actually open ourselves to new ideas and new understanding of money. 
And the piece that we can do inside ourselves is that piece around recognizing that in your life, you're the primary player in your life. You're the primary actor and no one else can live it for you. And if there's something that you want to experience in your life, and if you can love yourself and respect yourself enough to back the experiences you want to have, that will help you to connect with the true energy of money. So when you do those two things together, then the whole system can start to connect together in a much better way. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Sarah, about this concept of abundance being infinite. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I think with with people that believe in this like zero-sum game reality where one person wins, another person loses, you know, I, I believe in what you're saying about this concept that like actually money is energy and we're all creating it. It's a story that humans are creating. And on a spiritual level, there is an inf- infinite kind of aspect to it. But like, I'm curious, like, can you talk to us about what that means? Like, you know, why is abundance infinite in your words? There's a very simple picture that I share quite often, which helps us to understand it. Most of us at an ordinary everyday level have a sense that if I have a hundred dollar bill and I pay that to somebody else, I now have less money and that person has more money. And our whole system kind of builds around this idea that that hundred dollar bill is a, you know, is a debit to me now and a credit to the other person. But if you look at what's really happening, it's quite different from that. If I pass $100 to you, it's because you've given me $100 worth or more possibly of value, of something that I really value that is worth more than that money. Otherwise, I wouldn't have paid that much for it. So I've got now $100 worth of something. And that might be something that I've invested in. Maybe it's some learning, for example, that's actually going to make me a whole lot more money in the future. So that $100 just in my life is still worth $100. It's usually worth more because usually people sell things that are more valuable than what you buy. But the other piece of it is that $100 is now in somebody else's hands and they have that $100. So I've had $100 from it. They've now got $100. That single note is now worth $200. Actually, in terms of its the value that it's created, that person can now go and get $100 worth of value and pass it on to a third person who can do the same thing. So our idea that $100 is $100 isn't because that $100 actually can move around thousands and thousands and thousands of people keep repeating the same action of providing $100 worth of value to them. So you can see immediately from a very simple um, picture that our very idea about money tends to be wrong from the root. And potentially that $100 and all the other $100 and 10s and 1s and everything else can keep moving around the world. And the limit on that is whatever the limit would be to human creativity. I don't believe there's a limit on human creativity. There's because there are more and more humans and um, we keep on having more, making more humans and we evolve and become more and more creative. So there might be a limit on what I can create in my life because at a certain point I'm going to die and I won't be able to create any more now. My understanding is I'm going to come back again anyway, so I'll go on creating then. So that's not terribly limited. And so the limits that we've created, then we say, well, the earth's resources are limited. But actually, well, at one level, the earth as a planet has certain limited resources and certain resources that cycle around all the time. Um, so is water limited? Probably not because water is like a currency. It flows all the time and it can pass through any part of earth and be cleaned and move on to another part. So I don't think that that's unlimited. Um, we might say, well, there's only a certain amount of gold in the ground or a certain amount of minerals, but what we can do with that gold and those minerals, there's no limit to that. And so whilst we might be using large amounts of something at the moment, we've seen time and time again through history that as we become more creative, we solve problems with far less resources. So if you look at an iPhone, or if you look at a phone now, and you look at even a phone 30 or 40 years ago, if you look at communication before that, which probably relied on you actually being with the person, that the amount of resources we use changes based on the amount of creativity we have. And so I don't see any limit to that. So as long as we link money with real value and with human creativity, 
it's a very, very different story from how we've seen it. And what about like money used, you know, for kind of negative consequences or, you know, neg- you know, money in the hands of the, with the wrong people? <laughs> well, I don't know if we can say somebody's a wrong person. I'm not sure that I can claim so much virtue that I'm a right person and somebody else is the wrong person. I feel we need to be really careful of that because the the things that we see as being wrong in society in terms of the way that money is used um, are all pretty much all things that we participate in and our energy contributes to that as well. And I feel we need to take responsibility for that. There is no way that we could have a culture where the machinery of war and really the machinery of being afraid of death, so the medication kind of system that we're so reliant on at the moment that isn't always even good for people. Um, I don't think we could have a culture that has an economy based on those kinds of things if we didn't participate in that. And it's the fact that we participate, it's the fact that all of us actually fight very easily and we all look for quick solutions to things and don't really care about the consequences. Some of us do it more than others, but none of us is immune from that. So I feel we need to take responsibility, first of all, each of us, for the way that we are with money. And when we do that, we will influence the collective and the collective use of money will gradually become wiser. Um, The way money is used in a society is a reflection of that society. So it's a reflection of the people in that society and what they stand for. And when we start to see it like that, first of all, it's very confronting because you start to realize so many ways in which as a human being, you're lazy in your consciousness. Like you don't really care about a lot of things. You can say, oh, I'm a really good person. You can be spiritual. You can be all these things. But if you'd actually really look at your life, you're not so, so far away from those people who we think are bad people. And many of them are people who are probably your friends. They're working in those companies. You know, people work in all kinds of companies because they need to make some money. And they may be very good, very intelligent, very kind people working in industries that that you don't like. So it's much more complex and much more richly textured and layered than these rather polarizing views that tend to be prevalent in the media today. Right. No, absolutely. I think I was, you know, referring to, and maybe I should have said the wrong, you know, hands <laughs> instead of the wrong person. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's interesting because there, there is you know, the creation piece of money. I think that's what I'm, what I'm going to is there's a sort of a money can be used for destruction and it can be used for creation. So, you know, how, while there are some people working at companies that may be net negative for society at large. Um, yeah, my, my question is really like, well, what can we do to sort of help move the money into more of a creative space rather than a destructive space? We need to do that ourselves. We need to recognize where we are making, where we are using money um, for for purposes that are not really supportive to life. And, and most people do that. And most people do it quite a lot. So a lot of people waste a lot of money. A lot of people spend money on things that don't actually bring them any value at all. They're very unconsidered. So we could, I, I think it's important to start to look at how you can invest because when you invest, you're looking for a return. There will be some spending needed. Waste, you can probably get rid of. You don't need to waste money. Sometimes you'll feel you've wasted money because you made a mistake and that's fine. That's learning. But I think it's really helpful to turn our attention towards how am I investing? I don't necessarily mean you know an investment portfolio, but is this purchase that I'm making at the moment an investment in my life and in life? Or is it detrimental either to my life or to life itself? And then if you're running a business, you'll start to bring those decisions into the way that you design and run and grow your business. If you're working in a business, you will bring that kind of thinking in the way that you influence the business that you're working in. If more people do that, we will have more businesses based on those kinds of principles and that makes a very different world. Uh, just looking at everything as 
an investment opportunity versus something that just maybe brings us neutral joy or or neutrality rather, or even, you know, despair. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. Uh, so can you tell us, Sarah, like what's the biggest surprise that you've had in your work? Like what have you kind of come across that has surprised you about human behavior, uh, about the story of money? Um, maybe the biggest surprise or certainly a big surprise has been realizing that when you open up a, a a really good relationship with money, joy is one of the consequences of that. I find it fascinating because we often look for joy. For example, if you start a business uh, and people people want joy, they want. I really see that a lot in business. People are looking for joy, and they find it so hard to find it. And so it surprised me that it was actually in money. It was in the relationship with money that I found it easier to find than any more, there more than anywhere else. And so people are looking kind of in the right place and they're not looking in the right way, I would say. <laughs> and yeah, I found that really, really fascinating. And I've seen many other people experience the same thing. They start to find themselves. And then they start to be able to connect with the source of joy within themselves. And that has come through this exploration of their relationship with money. Sarah, I'm curious, like, what sort of ways have you noticed the discrepancy between um, genders, if any, when it comes to philosophies around money? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's probably not necessarily so much exactly gender or we but we certainly we certainly have a kind of yin and yang so that masculine and ex feminine expressions of money um, and of course some women will have more of that masculine energy some men will have more of that feminine energy so that's not you know that that needs to be borne in mind but definitely it's very clear to me um, that the there's a whole body of expertise, which I would say lands very firmly on the masculine, the yang side of the equation, which is around strategy. It's around money in terms of goals and objectives. It's around the legal and the structuring of businesses, all of that. And that, that has been the strength of a very masculine-dominated economy. And on the other side, on the more feminine side or the yin side, you have the, the softer qualities, which are equally important, which are our behavior around money and our sense of purpose, um, not, not just as a goal, but that deeper, more expanded sense of purpose, which creates the entire frame of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, the skills of communication that connect people together, which don't seem to feature much in the strategy conversations. <laughs> and yet to have a business that doesn't have good connectedness between people and communication and organization and creativity and all of these, th that business doesn't work. And I find that really fascinating that uh, I get into a lot of conversations where it's like that part of the business is completely invisible in the conversation. Um, <laughs> And I look at that and I'm amazed. I'm frankly amazed because I know that if people fall out, that business will not exist. It will fail. And a lot of startups fail not because they didn't structure right and they didn't get all that stuff right, but because they maybe the founders couldn't even get on with each other or because somebody told me the other day the founders are not connected with their own inner sense of purpose. They haven't done any of that stuff. So I think that what we see is some people who are much, much stronger on one side than the other. Um, it's not entirely gender-based, but there will be a tendency towards, you know, men being more on the masculine side and women being more on the feminine side. A lot of women have had to become very masculine in the way they do business um, in order to survive. Um, I personally very strongly hold that both those energies are essential in all our relationship with money, we cannot abandon the masculine, but we and we cannot continue with an under 
representation of the feminine because it, the, when the masculine gets out of control, we see a lot of destruct, destruction and things happening like that. Um, so the feminine needs to become stronger with the aim to become balanced. I, I think this is really important. And what are some ways that the feminine can become stronger? Like how do you, I guess, coach people who, because um, I think that's a question I think a lot of women have difficulty answering, right? Like, you know, you mentioned, right? Like we, we end up like taking on more masculine qualities in our, in our workplace in order to be heard and seen. And then it just feels like it's a really inauthentic sense of self because, um, the true desire is to actually, you know, show up with that, you know, creativity that maybe a softer approach, um, a more intuitive, maybe primordial wisdom gathering. And yeah, it feels like there's not, as much space for that um, in a culture where there's a lot of fast movement and decision making rather than thoughtfulness and reflection. So I'm yeah curious, like how do you work with women who want to cultivate that, or even organizations who are desiring to to help their women kind of become that? For me, um, this is really interesting territory because. If you want to bring that kind of quality to business, and there is no question that it it enhances business, there's a certain level of letting go of that, kind of letting go of the ego, really, letting go of that desire to be the one or to show how special you are or to prove yourself. If you can let go of that and look at what are the outcomes we're creating here? What's important here in this meeting or in this project or in this business? What are we really about? And what are we, what are we getting done? And if you can bring that feminine, more feminine quality, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman or that, that it's not about that, but if you can bring that feminine quality, also if you can bring love, and if you can bring your attention to the outcomes that are desired, that is amazingly powerful. You may not get all the recognition for it. Over time, I'm sure that you will be valued for it. People will want to have you in their business and in their team because they will know somehow that you bring that hidden factor. But you have to get over the need to be the one who's making all the noise in the meeting. (laughs) Because if you have to show up in that other way, if you have to show up like, no, it was me, 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 me. It was my idea. I had that, you know, this is all about me and I'm going to solve this problem. You will sacrifice the more, the greater power that you have, which is ultimately the power of love. It's a kind of emotional power that can get outcomes that mental power and mental application simply cannot get. So if you're willing to give up the the need to be seen and heard um, and prove yourself for the sake of the true outcomes, you will be the the big winner, so to speak. And it won't all be in a, it won't be all like, yeah, I'm I'm always the hidden silent one and nobody ever sees me and I, I do all these things. So you're trying to prove yourself to yourself. <laughs> it will actually be that people want you to be there because they know that you're the secret source. I love that reducing self-importance <laughs> is the kind of the key to this and just um, being the the person who can show up and and not you know feel like you have to attach your name to it and that it does take time, I think, for recognition, but that's not the point. Um, so Sarah, can you tell us, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about love too. I was really, really intrigued when I heard about it and uh, I'd love to know why you created it and what the inspiration was. The inspiration was very simple. I met somebody who was talking about the fact that there were, at that point, $4.5 trillion a year that was being mandated, literally mandated, to be invested in ecological and social improvement. And probably around 10% of it was actually being invested. And the reason for that was because, fundamentally, there is no match between the people who do good ecological work and the financial markets, because the financial markets have quite clear and specific requirements for their investments, and ecological projects just don't meet those requirements. And the first one is that they're usually far too small. And um, so on the one hand, we had that money, and on the other hand, we have people all over the world, and myself being one of them, who have 
spent our whole life either many people who've done regenerative farming, protected nature, then people like me who've taught people how to improve their health and well-being. This is really valuable work for life, valuable for us as human beings, but it is not valued in the markets. And so we wanted to bring those two pieces together and enable large-scale capital, not just little drips and dribs and drabs here and there, little grants and, and little donations, but large-scale financial capital to be put into the people and the organizations that are doing what's really valuable for life and in many cases essential, like producing living soil and fresh air and clean water and biodiversity. These are the things that support the very essence of life on this planet. And if we don't take care of them, we will lose them. And we will not, not only will we not be alive, even if we were, there would be no quality to our life. So that's essential and it's not valued. We have to find a way for it to be valued so that money, which represents value, can actually flow to it. Amazing. And you're looking still for business partners um, for this or what is the call to action right now? How can we support you? Um, we have, so so what, where we actually are is that we have developed a, an algorithm, if you like, for valuing the work that people do. So that we've started with regenerative farming and um, conservation protection of nature. And we've developed an algorithm for valuing the work people do to regenerate nature on their land. And we have issued them with million hundreds of millions of dollars so far worth of options which is a financial instrument um and we are now selling our options into the financial markets so um what that does is bring money to those farmers who are regenerating the land and the beautiful thing is as they get that money they will do more regeneration and they will teach more and more people how to do it because they're the they, they know how to do it. They've been doing it for years in most cases. So, um, yes, we're, we're really in the market for um, institutional investors, accredited investors, family offices, high net worth individuals. We're not yet at the level for the smaller investors of the, you know, just like putting a couple of thousand in. We'll get there because we're in the process of listing on stock exchanges and making all of that system work. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a chance for people to put their money into a de-risked um, equity investment. It's an actual equity and to get a market competitive return, which is backed by certified ecological improvement. And there is nothing like that on the market at the moment. Wow. So powerful. Thank you so much for being a part of this and we'll make sure to include it in the show notes. Uh, so what about some of the decisions that you've made um, kind of in this space that felt difficult but important? And also, like, what has changed since the pandemic, you know, um, about your work, about um, some of the ways that you work with people when it comes to money and investments? Um, the most difficult thing for me or the most challenging thing for me has been to go from being that person who could barely pay her rent to somebody who's talking about what I just talked about and to be able to talk in terms of billions of dollars um, and be seriously involved, like the co-originator, co-founder of a business that's engaging at that level in shifting our economy, because that's what I believe is possible to do. The, the kind of change that I ha have had to make and continue to have to make to be able to do that with integrity and credibility and everything else that goes with it has been huge, absolutely huge. And I have time and time again had to wrestle with myself to show up more fully and more fully and more fully and more fully for things that in the early days I didn't even really understand. I just knew how important it was. So that, that's definitely been the biggest challenge for me. Um, I feel I'm continually called to show up and stand up and um, value what I do and, and know myself and know the world in ways that I couldn't have dreamt that I would ever have to do this lifetime. So it's been beautiful and valuable and hard all at the same time. In terms of COVID, 
honestly, for me, I, I like I don't think COVID's really made much difference. Um, I, it's, it's made a lot of difference to a lot of people. It didn't make much difference to me. I've been learning about health and well-being for years, so like I, I don't have any fear around things like that. I don't think that it was an entirely inappropriate um, response, in my view, um, given the knowledge that I have. That wouldn't be true if you didn't have the same knowledge. Um, in terms of people, I feel that we are in a time, it doesn't really matter whether it's COVID or it's Ukraine or it's climate change or whatever anybody wants to talk about at the moment. We are in a time of extreme transition and we are faced with choices on a daily basis about the future that we are choosing through the way that we live our life. And it doesn't matter what the narrative is. What matters is what choices you make. So do you make choices? Do you invest in your health and well-being? Do you invest in the future of you and your children and your grandchildren if you have them? Do you invest in a world that works for all of us? Or do you actually invest your money and your time and your energy in a world that produces inequality, extreme poverty in some situations, more sickness than there needs to be, um, destruction, systematic destruction of nature. If we can start to look at the way we invest our time and our money and our energy and our knowledge and all our resources and make that in a way that is supportive to life, then, well, to me, that's that. That is simply the choice that we can make every single day, and that's what we can learn from COVID. We people felt threatened around their health, but had no idea how to look after their health, and the governments didn't give them any advice on it. That's absolutely crazy. Now we have other situations, but they all come down to exactly the same questions. These are such important points. Uh, I love this inquiry of investment. And that question, that inquiry alone is is just so valuable because, um, you know, every decision that we make, now that I'm realizing it, <laughs> is an investment in something. And uh, I, I imagine that for most of us, as we go through our days, we're probably making a lot of unconscious decisions and choices that probably impact um, or make an impact that we're not really supportive or happy about. So I, I love that. Um, do you do some kind of like due diligence on your own life to ensure that you're on the right path uh, or moving towards a place of alignment and in, in sort of um, expansion? Uh, because I, I asked I ask that question because I think for a lot of us, we can sort of feel a little bit um, unconscious in our day-to-day -day lives, especially if we have a little bit of a routine. And so just curious, like what's your, what's your practice for being in a space of expansion? Do you have a morning routine? Uh, do you have a nighttime routine? Um, in theory, I do, and sometimes it gets broken because of my schedule. Um, so normally, yes, I, would always, I have a grounding exercise that I do first thing in the morning. Um, my in my ideal life, I spend time relaxing every morning before I do anything else and connecting with my higher self and the energy of money and the biz energy of the businesses I'm in and things like that. Um, exercise is really important. I do a different kind of grounding exercise in the evening before I go to bed, but I have had to become a lot more flexible recently because you know yesterday morning I had a five o'clock start. Yet today I had a five thirty start. And um, then I have to just make it work as best I can. What I do all the time is sense the energy of myself and everything that's going on around me. And I'm, so I'm constantly orientating more through my subtle senses to what feels more healthy, what feels more whole, what feels more supportive, what feels more alive. Um, and when I find myself going in directions that feel less alive, I, I look for how I can change direction and come more towards aliveness. Mm, that's really powerful. Thank you so much, Sarah. Is there um, any teacher or uh, resources, books that have really inspired you on this path? You know, what other maybe resources or 
mentors have you looked up to for guidance? I was, uh, at the time, which is quite a long time ago now, I think that um, the Conversations with God series by Neil Donald Walsh were actually really helpful for me, um, allowing me to challenge all kinds of things in a direction that felt quite natural for me. And I do feel that that series was enormously, it's just an enormous contribution. I I tend to learn more from inner guidance. Uh, I mean, I've had some great teachers, but I don't. It's like I don't relate terribly to that kind of question because I, I'm probably one of those fiercely sort of independent people who's trying to steer a path. Um, I was very influenced by. The, the kind of Taoist philosophy because I trained for 22 years with two Chinese masters. So that had a huge influence over my life. Um, yeah, that's kind of my underlying language, I guess. Amazing. We should have started the conversation there. <laughs> I'm very interested in that. Um, but Sarah, I know that we're coming at time. I, I just wanted to ask, what do you want to tell our listeners about their health and wellness, well-being? What's sort of your main takeaway? If you know you had a call to action for our audience and our listeners to do today, what would you tell them? It's valuable. It's way more valuable than preventing yourself from being sick or doing something about it after you get sick. It's one of your, probably it should be your primary investment. Um, And that's not just about money. That's actually about how you value yourself and your own life. No one else can live your life for you. Only you can live your life. So your health and well-being is your responsibility. It's your value. And it enables you to make the contribution that you would love to make. So to me, it is central it is your primary investment and it's a beautiful thing to support health and well-being and thriving in your own life amazing and Sarah, where can people find you can you um point them to your website and where they can purchase your book um my website i have two websites which is sarahmccrum.com my name and liberatehumanity.com which is where you find my courses and the book is actually on love money book com lovemoneybook.com. Amazing. Amazing. We'll include those in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. I, this was very enlightening, very timely, I think for a lot of people. And, um, I'm just excited to see where love to goes, the direction of that and, um, just everything that you're working on. It just, it feels very important work. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yasmin. Thank you. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the energy of money and how to love it with Sarah McCrum. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality.